Tommy Vance's pages from CFAX. It was quite a dungaree <laughs> He's condemned for being a time you treat. He just shoved people into swimming pools. The band that my word processor hates. Is it is it unthinkable that you could have an R in 1980s tabloid world? Hello, I'm Tim Worthington, and welcome to another collection of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar, a show in which myself and the guests talk about some of the things that they remember that no one else ever seems to. I've just opened the Radio Times Guide to TV Comedy at Random, and on page 433, there's an entry for Men of the World, a mid-90s BBC One sitcom that ran to two series featuring David Throwfall and John Sim as two men being, well, men, basically. 83 pages further on than that, the entry for Only Fools and Horses is enthusiastic and exhaustive, but it doesn't mention one particular detail about the earliest episodes that was very, very different. When writer Justin Lewis appeared on the show, that forgotten detail was something he very much wanted to remind everyone about. I first heard this, I think it was Easter Sunday in 1987, probably, when BBC One was doing a night of BAFTA-winning repeats, when John Sullivan had recently won, I think it was a special award, so they reran the very first Only Fools and Horses episode from September 1981, and I had never seen the first series at all. By 87, you know, Fools and Horses obviously was just massive. Everyone watched it. And the opening titles looked the same, but by Jiminy, they didn't sound the same. You can almost, almost sing the title of Only Fools and Horses to that Ronnie Hazelhurst tune. It is a misjudgment completely, isn't it? But... I can sort of hear why it was given that theme tune in a strange kind of because sitcom themes did still sound like that in 1981. But it doesn't really tell you anything about the show. It's just funny music. It's funny. Look, funny saxophones. It's like the on the buses music. Whereas they brought in... Well, they were going to get Chaz and Dave, weren't they? And then John Sullivan did his own much lower key theme music with lyrics that really sort of evoke London and the place and all of that kind of thing. Whereas I suppose the original music has got that piano and it's sort of become, you know, that became well known. I mean, it's become well known that it took off when that second series got a repeat. But you could, I think, make a serious claim that changing the theme tune probably saved the show, I think. Oh, absolutely. Because I mean, my background with this is I remember those original broadcasts with it on. I remember being surprised when they put the second theme on because it's a really really odd story attached to this is that that was only on the first series and the first Christmas special which is kind of sort of swept under the carpet now because their dad appears in it Oh yeah, that's right. that kind of messes with the continuity a bit Mm. but I remember because about two people watched Only Fools and Horses during the very first series, (laughs) it's not an exaggeration John Sullivan was always surprised it made it to a second series but I remember because I was the only person in our family who wanted to watch the Christmas special. I had to watch it on the black and white portable. Years and years later when the very, very last Only Fools and Horses ever was on, I was the only one who didn't want to watch it and I watched something else, I can't even remember what, on that same black and white portable. It's like a really neat full circle. And I was actually just to change the subject for a second, trying to speculate on how I came to dislike Only Fools and Horses so much or or lose interest rather. I can't say Mm. dislike, but I was mad on it at first and I just Mm. got really, really fed up with it over the years. And the only explanation I can come up with, really, is that kind of when it got big, it annoyed me that people latched onto the wrong bits and misquoted it and <laughs> laughed yeah. at things where you thought, that's not one of the jokes. The only thing I can liken it to is it always really got right up my nose when, when one foot in the grave really took off. Demonstrably, when you watch it, 
Victor Meldrew says, I don't believe it in a very clicked way, you know, I don't believe it, or quite often it's I don't bloody believe it, which interferes yeah. with people quoting it. But yeah. everyone went round saying, I don't believe it, like that, and that really yeah. annoyed me. I think Only Fools and Horses was a bit like that. That's why I always loved it, when they would broadcast one with the original theme on, because it must yes. have really annoyed people. But I think with Fools and Horses, I mean, I don't know how you feel about this, but I think everyone secretly has a kind of a moment where they wish Fools and Horses had stopped at point X. Because obviously it nearly stopped with the Who Wants a Millionaire thing where Dell nearly goes to Australia and they were nearly going to finish it there. And I remember thinking when Rodney and Cassandra got married that that was the end of it. I just suddenly thought, no, you've done it. And then obviously a couple of years on you think, yeah, well, okay, so they're having a baby now. Yeah, okay, that'll be the end. And then obviously when they became millionaires, Rodders, I thought, well, okay, fine, that'll do now. Brilliant. You know, you've gone off on a high, you know, 28 million, million people watching or whatever it was but no <laughs> they still, they get, and then the green green grass which no one wants that <laughs> the trouble is people don't realise they've had enough of something sometimes you know we can all point to things that just went on a bit long the interesting thing about this theme music is it's something that fascinates me things that were different about shows when they first started and when yes. you watch those opening titles they are cut in time to the original theme that's all exactly gone and off right. goes yes. exactly with it and yeah. weirdly I think it works that it doesn't correspond with the John Sullivan theme right. kind of you're paying more attention to what's happening on the screen yeah. and maybe that helped its chance of success I don't actually know but you do get things like do you remember the original Yes Minister opening titles oh remind me rather than the Gerald Scarf cartoon it had the front page of a newspaper where it kind of panned across and there were photographs of them as part of a story oh, on the front yes. page. Do you know what was the opening theme for Happy Days when it started? It was Rock Around the Clock, wasn't it? it Which I it think was. was replaced for later repeats, wasn't it? With yeah. the proper Happy Days theme. Well, I mean, I assumed that presumably it was one of those things that if they were ever going to put it on video or DVD, it would have been absolutely insanely expensive to actually clear that. But maybe, I don't know, maybe the rules are different in America. Do you know what the original music for the Catherine Tate show was the first series I mean they, they had its own theme after series one but the first series was In These Shoes by Kirsty McCall and also of course there's uh, I mean there's Peep Show famously with Flagpole Sitter which of course was covered before Peep Show did it by Weird Al Yankovic <laughs> This is a polka medley he did. We can probably be fairly sure that there were no unusual cover versions and probably even no cover versions at all of the theme song from a Cliff Richard film that very few people seem to have seen, but comedian and writer Jane Hill certainly had. It's a film called His Land. It was a film where Cliff Richard and an American evangelist called Cliff Barrows toured the Holy Land, toured Israel. I think it was a film that was made... I mean, obviously a Christian film, you know, Cliff Richard was big in Christianity. We were quite a Christian family. We spent quite a lot of time doing church, church activities in the Anglican church, but at kind of the, what you might call the happy clappy end of the Anglican church. And this film was massive for us. Cliff Richard was massive for us, as you can imagine, because, you know, he was both a pop star, but also a Christian. So he was kind of doubly exciting. And he actually came to our church once, which honestly, as, as a child, was one of the most exciting days of my life. We sat in the pew behind him because my dad was one of the church wardens. And at one point, his guitar nearly fell over and my dad had to prop it up. And he turned around and thanked my dad. And, you know, I was seven or eight or something. And I couldn't have been more excited. I watched his Saturday night show. My earliest ambition was to be one of the dancers on It's Cliff. But then His Land came out and they showed it in church. 
And that was the thing. We all went to church one weekday evening and they had a, one of those projectors up and the film had obviously been hired out to churches to show and it broke. So we all had to go back the following week to watch it again. And I thought it was amazing. Cliff Richard wore a kind of a purple jumper. That's the thing I always remember as he kind of toured Jerusalem, stopping every so often to sing a song about God or about some Bible story. But Cliff Barrows, the other guy involved, was this evangelist with the most amazing speaking voice. And there's a track on the album called Dry Bones, where he's in this valley somewhere in the desert. And he does the bit from, I think it's Ezekiel, all about the dry bones. And it's the most incredibly dramatic thing I've ever heard. Well, I heard at the time. I, I exaggerate. I've obviously heard more dramatic stuff since, but it was really thrilling. And me and my two best friends, if we were asked for our favourite film as children, we went His Land by Cliff Richard because it was just so exciting to watch a film in church. Well, I'll come back in a minute to the dry bones thing. Oh, God, do you? It's, it's amazing. But what it's making me think of is kind of, it's reminding me of Highway with Harry C which obviously was the 80s ITV Godslot programme. But obviously they went to the expense here of flying Cliff Richard out to the Holy Land rather than having (laughs) Harry Seacombe wandering around, you know, a Ford plant somewhere singing, God made the trees to some men working (laughs) a lathe. But these were like, I think they wrote specific songs for it. I mean, I've I've sound like I really fondly remember it. It was just such an exciting thing to go into church and be played a film with your favourite pop star wandering around this foreign country in the footsteps of Jesus and it just seemed you know it, it's one of those things that you will only remember if you had the, the kind of childhood I did you know you you won't have ever heard of this film if you didn't go to church as a sort of 10 year old but for me it was just we had the album as well at home we actually had the album the soundtrack album and we used to play it quite often so it's really kind of stuck with me and it was something that united kind of children and parents you know, because it was kind of a pop star, but it was religious. So Dry Bones, is it actually the Dem Bones, Dem Bones song, but done dramatically? Well, no, it's... <laughs> it's... I'm trying to remember my Bible, and it's obviously a long time since I read it, because it's all a very long time ago. I think it's the prophet Ezekiel, and he has this vision of a valley full of dry bones, of just like bones lying around, and whether they're kind of jo- then joined together and come up and move, I can't remember. But... It just seemed really dramatic, you know, when these deep American evangelical voices. Well, I was hoping it would be the knee bones connected to the thigh bone. Yeah, no, I don't think it would only be, you know, not more than 18 months after that was used in the last episode of The Prisoner. And that would be quite, <laughs> quite a leap from, you know, Patrick McGowan running around in Port Merion <laughs> to Cliff Richard being reverential. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, sadly, I don't think, whether the song was inspired by it, I don't know. But it's just a, it's one of those kind of prophetic visions done. In a, I mean, you know, years later, I realised, of course, this is how Americans do evangelism. You know, at the time, it was all new to me and seemed very exciting. There was a whole load of these films around them, which, again, aren't really sort of chronicled anywhere. These are seldom mentioned, but there were a lot of them, mm. mainly American. But there were some with Cliff that aren't even really mentioned alongside his other films. Because I mean, one thing I will say in Cliff Richard's favour is he made some great films in the 60s. Mm. And his land doesn't get mentioned alongside Serious no. Charge and so on. Exactly. I mean, because the other film I went to see around this time was 
Take Me High, which was the other Cliff Richard film from the 1970s, which I remember very vividly. He played a businessman who's sent to Birmingham to work and obviously feels quite glum. He's been sent from London to Birmingham. But he meets a woman who lives on a canal boat and he invents a new kind of burger called the Brum Burger. And the final scene, I think, is him on the canal boat, you know, launching the Brum Burger. And, you know, the fact that somebody came up with the idea of making a musical a romance starring, you know, one of the biggest stars in pop music at the time that involved inventing a burger in Birmingham. You know, that's, <laughs> you know, the Birmingham tourist office, you know, they'd had Telly Savalas doing the looking around Birmingham. And they thought, let's get Cliff Richard and making a romantic <laughs> extraordinary scenes and of course that has Deborah Watling who had not yes. long been in Doctor Who at that point yes. in it I remember that Deborah Watling wore a lot of dungarees it was quite a dungaree focused <laughs> film and I think in the very opening scene Cliff has this kind of row with the woman he's he's living with or something and when my sister and I went home and started replaying the plot to my mother she was most shocked that Cliff Richard had been living with somebody and she said oh perhaps it was his sister you know <laughs> Because the thought that he would walk out on one woman and then get involved in a romance with the other woman seemed kind of, you know, not the sort of thing he would do. It's you not know, very clear. Yeah, well, I'll say that. Yeah, you know, there was no God in Take Me High. It was just a film about burgers and canals. But, well, I don't think there was a hidden Christian message in it. While it was hardly the sort of biblical happening that Cliff Barrows would have seen fit to indulge in some booming, ominous narration about, writer and author Gabby Hutchison Crouch wanted to share her memories of a literally seismic event from her childhood. One of my first memories, my very first memory, I think, is me eating a strawberry and throwing up. But I'm pretty sure my second memory is, so we lived in the absolute middle of nowhere, just outside Carnarfon, a village called Bethel, which is between Carnarfon and Bangor in northwest Wales. When I I was a very little girl. We had a tiny little house and our room, the room that me and my sister shared, it was probably just a cupboard. I seem to remember there wasn't a door, there was a curtain that attached onto my parents' living room, which I remember being huge, but I was very small. So I think it was quite a small living room. And we were in bunk beds. And I have a memory of waking up to the sound of smashing glass. So when you're a four-year-old, waking up to the sound of smashing glass isn't great. And I was also kind of aware that things were moving <laughs> that shouldn't be moving. I remember my mum running in because I was in the top bunk and physically pulling me out of bed and throwing me into my sister's bottom bunk and then staying with me then. It was the Clan Peninsula earthquake, which I think it killed somebody. I think somebody got a chimney. <laughs> Literally, we found out what somebody looked like with a chimney on her. <laughs> I think I heard that somebody had been killed or during that or during one of the tremors. And then I remember the aftershocks, because, again, when you're four, you don't really understand that it's not just earthquake and then done. Something scary has happened and now it's stopped, which was my understanding of it to begin with. And then there were aftershocks and that was horrible. It's like, mummy, it's happening again. I remember my mum telling me, no, 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 it's, it's an aftershock. It's going to be smaller. We've had the big one and now this is going to be just sort of the earth just sort of settling. But it was a really, really weird, weird first memory for me to have. And the smashing glass was my parents' mirror falling off their bedroom wall. Or it might have been a, a portrait with a, with a glass frame, which was what woke me up quite scarily. <laughs> Well, that's kind of your seven years bad luck all in once. I know. <laughs> but apparently this was the largest mainland UK earthquake since records began. It was 5.4 mm. on the Richter scale and it caused yeah. damage in lots of surrounding areas. And I actually remember because there's a lot of damage caused in Liverpool and our oh church God. 
had around the nominal garden of the priest's house. It was a very small perfunctory wall, which I'd always thought, why would you even have that wall anyway? It looks like it's just like bricks sitting on top of each other. That came down in the earthquake. The thing was, a couple of years later, we decided that Matt Goss was singing about that when he sang, I'll watch you crumble like a very old wall. (laughs) But somehow, Matt Goss had come all the way from Cheddar be at our church when that had happened and he decided to commemorate it in song that's wonderful i really hope that that's true (laughs) i don't remember any damage being done i don't think any damage was done to our house i certainly don't remember any stories about i mean there must have been damage nearby because we were right near the peninsula in carnarvon it was really close to it obviously my memories of it are really really hazy because i'm only (laughs) i was only four at the time but a lot of people don't remember it because I don't know, because it didn't happen in the South. Like, all of my friends, like, all of my peers these days, they won't fucking shut up about the hurricane, which didn't happen to me, because at the time I was living in Derbyshire, and that was something that happened to somebody else. They will not stop going on about that. Yeah, you had a bit of wind, so what? The earth went mad when (laughs) I was little. (laughs) Nobody knows. Nobody hears about it, because it happened in the North and the West. It was like, yeah, we had wind. Some trees fell down. The man on the telly said it wouldn't happen, and then it did. Change the record. I wonder if anyone said there wouldn't be an earthquake on TV in the <laughs> Now I've heard some people say <laughs> that the earth is made out of plates. I must assure you it's not true. God is very happy with us. <laughs> And the crops won't fail. I couldn't find much else that Clan is known for, to be honest. I'm sorry, I'm probably doing all the people there a great disservice, but everywhere you look, there is just references to the earthquake. Mm-hmm. It's very pretty around there. I mean, my the house that I was living in when I was four was like so Welsh. It was like there was like Snowdonia like round the back. <laughs> like had, we had our garden and then, oh, there's Snowdonia. It was very, very pretty and very, very small and very inaccessible to my parents who didn't have that much money. I think they had like a little Renault 4 or a Renault 5 which was constantly breaking which when you're living in the middle of nowhere isn't good well I've tried looking up just now live on air everyone to see if I can find anything interesting about it I can't find any mention of notable people anywhere all I've found is that it's noted for its breed of sheep who I'm guessing this is a typography of something more meaningful <laughs> they're known for their excellent profligacy <laughs> They just go around throwing money everywhere. (laughs) To be fair, if you had a sheep with that much money, you would want to be noted for it. Yeah. Yeah, it's very beautiful, but yeah, not much going on. I want to compare North Wales to a young Orlando Bloom. It's absolutely gorgeous, but there's nothing going on. Sports writer Carrie Dunn, on the other hand, wanted to warn people about an altogether more theatrical kind of disaster. I feel like this is therapy because nobody has let me talk about this in 11 years. So this ran for about 10 days, literally about 10 days at the Comedy Theatre. As you may have guessed by now, I really love musical theatre. Absolutely love it. Always have done. And so I'm always really interested when there's a new musical out because, you know, lots of the West End theatres have been taken up with, you know, the same old long runners, say Phantom and Les Mis and all that stuff, which are great, but it's nice to see new things. So I went along to see Too Close to the Sun and it was not selling a lot of tickets. So there are a handful of people in the stalls 
this is a musical about the last week in the life of Ernest Hemingway, which is an interesting idea. It's got Ernest, it's got his wife, and then two entirely made-up characters, an old school friend who wants him to kind of sign all his rights away to him so he can capitalise on it, and a New York secretary who's like his personal assistant who seems to want to kind of get Ernest Hemingway to sleep with her. We're not really quite sure. She doesn't really have a lot of character development. So it's this forehander and basically it's all leading up to Hemingway's suicide. <laughs> this is the climax of your musical, this gunshot. Um, they're singing these songs about what it's like to feel the taste of a gun in your mouth. The secretary girl is talking about um, New York being the cityest of cities which is one of the lyrics I remember because it makes no sense. Yes, it was this just hideous, hideous musical ending with Hemingway dying. And one of the interesting things about it was Jay Benedict, who recently passed away, was originally cast as the old school friend of Hemingway. And he dropped out of the show with a knee injury uh, shortly before this show opened. Now, whether or not he had a knee injury, I'm not sure, but it was certainly <laughs> the right decision not to be in it. I was fascinated to know what Jay Benedict's experience of this show had been and I'd also written a rather caustic blog about this terrible, terrible script and terrible, terrible musical, terrible, terrible acting just before I'd emailed him. So I got in touch with him through his official website and I got a very nice email back from the lady who handled his uh, website at the time with a personal PS from Jay Benedict saying, I thought your piece was very funny, even from where I'm standing or perhaps especially from where I'm standing. <laughs> so, yeah, this terrible show that no one saw because it was just in the West End for these 10 days and no one was buying tickets anyway. It was dreadful, so no one's ever going to revive it. And as you've quite rightly noted, there are no recordings of it. It has not been kept no. as posterity. Not even photos out there. It's <laughs> disappeared. And the thing that really struck me about it was the whole thing about, you know, about it being a musical about Hemingway and it was terrible and it was a bad idea from the beginning and it was really negatively reviewed and it closed early and so on. It's like a plot line from a sitcom like Arrested Development. But this is 2009. This was after all those sitcoms had done those storylines. Yeah. Why did anyone think it was going to work? I just can't. I appreciate I've not seen it and I know nothing about it. And I'm not, I can't find out anything about it because it's just disappeared from history. But did anyone involved really think it was going to take the world by storm? Well, as I understand it, the creative team behind it basically paid to put it on themselves. They weren't kind of, they didn't have a lot of investors. So, you know, it's probably good, a good thing because they would have lost a lot of money. And they had previously done a production of The Man in the Iron Mask, which was also terrible and also ran for a very, very short time. So I don't know what they're up to now. As far as I know, it's not musicals. So, you know, hooray for that. I just don't have much more to add here because I don't know much about musicals, but I like to think I can spot a hit one when I'm confronted with it. And I'm not spotting one now. It would not tempt me to go and see a musical. Oh, it's about Ernest Hemingway. You're like, okay. And he kills himself at the end. <laughs> 
No. This is it. You kind of know how Hemingway's life story is going to end. And also, he's not a very nice man. So no. what are you kind of going to look forward to in that two hours? Nothing. It makes me think of, do you remember Guy Gomer? Yes. Yes, he was the man who he went to the BBC, the BBC for yeah. a job interview and ended up on BBC News being interviewed. I mean, this just goes to show the transience of fame. At the end of that year, he turned up on Big Fat Quiz of the Year on Channel 4 as a Can You Remember Who This Was? As Russell Brand and Noel Fielding were one of the teams. And Noel Fielding said, yeah, I know who that is. It's the man we met in the corridor. <laughs> and then after they revealed who it was, Jimmy Carr said, and they're making a film about the incident, aren't they? <laughs> Noel Fielding said, can I play myself in the bit where I met you in the corridor? <laughs> and that was kind of, it was both funny and incredibly damning about the whole process of making a film about something that doesn't really warrant a film. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I appreciate this was a musical, which is perhaps worse in some ways. Yeah, you're trying to write melodies about Hem- Hemingway's suicide. I just don't think it's something that... Were the songs any good? No, they, they were terrible. They were really, really <laughs> bad songs and terrible lyrics. I remember Hemingway's wife singing about blue cheese bites at one point because she was making Ernest Hemingway a load of food that he liked to try and lure... <laughs> That sounds like a riveting scene. She was trying to lure him away from his alcoholism with cooking him nice food or or something. I don't know. Everything about this is more and more ridiculous the more that comes out about it. It it was so ludicrous. And it's kind of ludicrous in an almost joyous way. And There was kind of like, this was kind of really before Twitter really took off. So it's kind of like people on theatre message boards and blogs and stuff. And it's like we had our own little kind of support group. I remember meeting up with a couple of people at a different show because they had been at a different performance of Too Close to the Sun. We met up at the interval and we talked about this horrendous show we had seen. Almost as this kind of support group that we had to have to get through having seen this hideousness. And yet it's only 10 years ago and nothing of it is out there. No, no, it's very odd. I mean, normally you would have a kind of electronic press kit. So you'd have like a clip or at least at least some kind of stills of the show, production shots that they'd use to advertise. But no, nothing. When I think of theatre shows where nothing remains of them, you think of the 50s and the 60s, you think things like Mrs. Wilson's Diary, the Private Eye musical, where there's only the soundtrack album. I don't think I've ever even seen a photo from that. Things that were staged, like Curse of the Daleks, the Dalek play, where there's very little evidence of that left. You think of that as, you know, the olden days. But as recently as that, well, that said... Probably somebody did record a full cast soundtrack album of this and then thought, you know what, we'd better not put that out. Yeah, I don't think it would have sold many copies. And also, now I'm talking, I seem to recall that they actually sold off bits of the set and costume on eBay not long after it closed, obviously looking to recoup some of the losses. Sorry, just say that again. (laughs) I did say it keeps getting more and more ridiculous. Yeah, I honestly think that's what happened. I'm going to have to look it up because I seem to recall some people that I know getting hold of one of the parts of the set they were flogging off bits of the set and costume so they could recruit some of the losses even the fevered imagination of Ernest Hemingway or indeed someone writing a musical about the fevered imagination of Ernest Hemingway could never really have come up with the concept behind the cartoon that has haunted historian Tom Williamson since childhood when I was a kid growing up in the mid 90s I had this vague memory of a cartoon show called the Samurai Pizza Cats and when I watched it I remembered how strange it was there was always something really weird going on like there was a woman firing rockets out of her hair or a giant monster going around turning people into sushi. I went through the rest of my life with this show in the back of my mind, but no one else seemed to remember it. I remember talking to people at uni and, you know, students are always talking about TV shows they like when they were kids, but no one seemed to remember this one. And I got to a point where I thought, well, I must have dreamed it then. This, this must have been a 
dream I had. And then you invited me on the show and and I looked it up and to my great delight, I found that not only is it real, but all of the episodes are available on YouTube. Looking back on it now, the show is even madder than I remember it as a child. So it's an American production based on a Japanese cartoon from 1990 about a group of cats who sell pizzas by day and turn into crime-fighting ninjas at night. And it's one of those shows where the translation of the original was either very bad or just not there. So the American writers just saw the footage and made up what was going on, a bit like the Magic Roundabout. What resulted was some of the most bizarre and creative writing I've ever seen. I mean, some of the character names are great. The cats are called Speedy Ceviche, Polyester, and Guido Anchovy. There's even some controversy over Speedy Ceviche's name because before it was written down, people assumed it was the Italian word for service you know pizza italian fast service it made sense but when people saw his name written down it was ceviche but you know, the word starts with a c as in the raw seafood dish there's also one of the bad guys is called big al and his last name's dente <laughs> so he's done al dente which i really like but you know how some shows will occasionally break the fourth wall the samurai pizza cats demolished it with a wrecking ball so in the very first episode the villain says you don't have time to defeat me and one of the cats replies i've talked to the producer there's plenty of time they have this really odd way of getting around so the top of their pizza parlor is shaped like well a gun like a proper smith and western and when they needed to get somewhere they'd hop in some pizza ovens which concealed the entrance to it and they'd get changed along the way a little bit like wallace and gromit and they'd drop into a big bullet each you know a proper bullet they didn't try to disguise it and the gun would raise up and then you have francine the owner of the pizza parlor would then operate the gun by firing it at their target launching the cats of course you'd often miss and the cats would end up flying through glass buildings and demolishing chimney stacks that kind of thing oh and the woman who fired rockets from her hair she definitely existed and she's called lucille and she's a love interest for the male cats who sort of fight over in a pepe le pew kind of way it's a bit yeah it's a bit rubbish but the very first scene where they fight over her one of them uproots a tree i'm not talking about a small tree i'm talking about like a massive 20 foot oak tree and he smashes the other one in the face with it <laughs> he gets accused of not caring about the rainforests and gets called a neo-fascist feline for his troubles but lucille gets upset at them fighting and her hair opens up revealing a box full of little missiles which she then fires randomly leaving craters everywhere it's the end credits that sum up the show for me because they say we hope you like the show it's the best that we could do if you could do better then we'd leave it up to you well i found that it's actually really difficult to find out anything about samurai pizza cats itself because it's the usual thing of i mean there is a i'll come back to the company who actually did the translation for this in a minute but there is kind of a thing about sort of japanese anime suitmation puppet series and so on that were redubbed but you know bought in by american companies and edited around redubbed for showing in english that people really don't want to accept that those versions existed i mean the big ones for me were starfleet ulysses 31 and battle of the planets now battle of the planets was based on kind of an adult anime series called science ninja team gatchaman because battle of the planets was kind of a bit sanitized because it was for kids they put in some comedy robots bit based on R2-D2 and C-3PO. You cannot mention Battle of the Planets without somebody saying, ah, but did you know it was based on the Japanese series? And this is every reference to Samurai Pizza Cats online, including the Wikipedia page, is 99% about cat ninja legend Teandi. I think I've said that correctly, but... Yeah, something like that. They just won't let it go. They won't remember the programme as they watched it, as they enjoyed it when they were children. It has to be this clever, clever thing behind it. And don't get me started now. I could go on for ages. 
ages. But the translation for this was done by Saban Entertainment, who did a number of things around this time. They did that really annoying cartoon of Bell and Sebastian, which is nothing like the 60s series, which is really haunting and melancholy and arty, with that really desolate theme tune, and they kind of jollied it up a bit. There was that really creepy Pinocchio animation. Oh, God, yeah. Knocked to the floor going... Ah! Oh and that God! Yeah, that was horrible. Backwards theme music at the end as he kind of assembled and walked backwards. But this is nothing like either of those two. This is quite strange and surreal, really. Yeah, it's a really, really weird watch because you know that the writers are constantly taking the Mickey out of what they're seeing. Like the first time the bad guy appears, the big cheese. Most of his time is spent complaining about how he doesn't have any eyebrows. The next episode, they kidnap a sushi chef, and the sushi chef for some reason when he's walking down the street he appears to have his eyes closed and he says i knew i shouldn't have taken that bet that i could walk home with my eyes closed the chances of me getting home safely are about as high as me not bumping into any evil crows then of course the evil crows turned up and kidnapped him really odd thing about it is I'd assume just in the you know when I saw the title years ago in the back of my mind that it was kind of riffing on the popularity of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because you know obviously the samurai strip ninja the whole pizza element but it appears to have just developed in isolation to that oh yeah I'm pretty sure it did they do make a lot of references to the turtles they even have a reference to the turtles in the theme tune but yeah even though it's you know ninjas pizza I think it was a Japanese thing that would have probably have been in production either just before the turtles were or just roughly the same time but yeah it's nothing to do with being a turtles ripoff it's very much its own thing and it's also interesting that whereas that got renamed teenage recent hero turtles over here this stayed the samurai pizza cats rather than i don't know polite low-fat vegan shoes <laughs> with gluten-free base cats i don't know yeah it's one of the things i've never understood from my childhood why in the late 80s early 90s british censors had a problem with the term ninja samurai is a different thing i mean i mean when we think of samurai it's either it's easy to think of you know seven samurai of last samurai to think that it's a martial arts thing but samurais were just a class of people in feudal japan so it doesn't necessarily imply violence even though there's the samurai code it's a little bit like being a knight so if you're a knight that doesn't mean you're definitely going to be riding a horse in armor and cutting people's heads off but you might be you know it's a similar thing to samurai where you were where when you were watching it that it was you know it was dubbed it was i'm not saying necessarily spotted it was japanese but did you think there was something about it that was different that didn't quite add up not when i was a kid when i was watching it i couldn't quite believe what i was seeing it was just that mad when you see something like that when you're a kid and no one else remembers it then yeah you, you just you just doubt yourself to be honest nobody would really blame you for doubting yourself over the existence of the samurai pizza cats Broadcaster and writer Bob Fisher, however, has much more vivid memories of a certain strain of mind the celebrity who have probably even forgotten themselves. I really wanted to talk about a breed of celebrity that I only knew about as a kid through reading copies of the Daily Mirror that came into the house. So these are people who really, as far as I was concerned, didn't exist outside of the pages of tabloid <laughs> newspapers. I guess the easiest way to do this, can I can I give you an example of a couple of these? By all means, because I've got some uh, Right, spells. brilliant. We can, we can compare 1980s tabloid celebrities here. So, the, the first one that came to mind for me was a chap called Ralph Halpern, who was... Uh, see, I always recall him being referred to in the papers as Burton's boss. 
Ralph Halpern, who was a rather sharp-suited looking gent. And he was, shall we say, he was romantically linked by the tabloids to a page three model called Fiona Wright. So it's, it speaks volumes. The one bit of this story that I remember in vivid detail is the same thing sticking in your mind here, Tim, is a regular tabloid obsession of the 1980s, which was how many times people could have sex in a single night. Yes! <laughs> it, it, it wasn't enough to know that somebody had had sex. We had to know <laughs> how many times they'd done it in a single night. So Ralph Halpern, I have no idea whether this is true or not, but he was alleged to have done it. He did it, Tim. Use the correct word, bonked. bonked. He did it, of course, yes. <laughs> Bonking Burton's boss, he would have been, I guess, wouldn't he? Um, he did it five times a night, apparently. This was the story. These figures just seem to go around all over the place and get attached to uh, different celebrities and often quite unlikely celebrities. Because uh, can you think of another celebrity who was once rumoured to have done it a certain number of times a night? I had a really unlikely one in my head. Oh, that was Countdown to Richard Whiteley, known as Twice Nightly. Bingo. Absolutely on it's the money. Yes, Twice Nightly Whiteley. To which uh, Richard Whiteley, fantastic responded to this in brilliant form, as I recall, by saying the truth was that he did it once yearly, nearly, which I always <laughs> loved. Ralph Halpern, the brilliant thing about Ralph Halpern, can't even remember, was that, was that the extent of the story? Was that he was alleged to have had a ding-dong with a page three girl called Fiona Wright? Was that it, essentially? Pretty much, and that's more or less all that it says about him on his Wikipedia page as well. Because he's still around, isn't he? He's still with us, Ralph yes! Halpern. Yeah. <laughs> the other detail of the story that has stuck in my head for 30... I mean, I can't tell you at any given moment where my house keys or my wallet or my phone are. And, uh, you know, as you're aware, I, or a book you were indeed, looking for I've for just, this podcast. I've just spent ten minutes trying to find a book that I have this afternoon that we're going to talk about a little later on. No idea about the location of any of these things, but I can tell you that it was alleged that Ralph Halpern's five times a night sex ploits were fueled by his consumption of sunflower seeds, which I mean, I no, they were. I've, I've been, look, uh, let's let's not cast any aspersions here, Tim. Have you ever eaten sunflower seeds? No, me neither. Me neither. If I did, I can't imagine they would transform me from the shambling, overweight, pallid character that you would see before you into a five times a night sex machine. I think it would take a little bit more than a packet of sunflower seeds. That was mentioned as well. So this led me to thinking about all kinds of other people whose existence I was only really aware of through the pages of 1980s tabloids. Can I chuck Bungalow Bill Wiggins into the mix at this Bungalow point? Bungalow Bill Wiggins? <laughs> Bungalow. Yes, yeah. Apparently named after a Beatles song for no tangible <laughs> I so this bungalow Bill Wiggins thing was that he was he was the squeeze he was the bow of Joan Collins occasionally a toy boy Oh, but was he a they couldn't always wing it that way. Of course, he was a toy boy, absolutely. He was a bit old for one, so they couldn't always... <laughs> well, when not, they had no other way to describe him, they called him a toy Not compared boy. to Joe Collins, he wasn't, surely. I had no idea why he was known as Bungalow Bill. He was a property developer, wasn't he, Bungalow Bill Wiggins? So I assume it was something to do with that. I do remember some tabloid speculation was that he's called Bungalow Bill because he didn't have very much up top. 
But like you, I see, I got the Beatles White Album for Christmas in 1988, around the time, I think, that Bungalow Bill was in his pomp in the tabloid newspapers. So when I discovered there was a Beatles song called The Continuing Story of Bungalow Bill, my immediate reaction was that the song was about him and not the other way around. So I said, blimey, this bloke's been famous since 1968. He must be an extraordinary figure of a man. But he, so you think so you think he got his nickname from the Beatles song? I don't, well, that's just what I always assumed. Yeah. But, you know, I don't remember her ever going out with, like, Ian Revolution 9 <laughs> Smith or anything. <laughs> That would have been fantastic, wouldn't it? I wish I, I wish I knew more about John Collins' various squeezes over the years now. We can apply Beatles titles to all of them. There was the Carnival of Light one that nobody ever saw. <laughs> yes, he's never been released. He's still in a vault somewhere. So Bungalow Bill goes on the list. I was going to chuck in as well. Now, he's one. I don't even know this guy's surname. And there's a bit of me that doesn't ever want to know it. I don't want to look it up. I like the mystery and the enigma. But when Linda Lusardi was a regular page three model, she had a, a boyfriend who, and again, this is 35 years ago, but I distinctly remember he was a hunky plasterer called Terry. Yes. He was almost like a human touch thing about, you know, when they surveyed the page three girls about, what their idea of paradise was. <laughs> you know, they'd all say, ooh, going to Bali on Concord or whatever. And then yeah, there'd be Linda Lissardi going, going for a nice slap-up Chinese with plaster material. <laughs> no, whoa, whoa, whoa. Give the man his full title here, Tim. Hunky plasterer. Hunky plasterer. Hunky plasterer, Terry. Plasterer, Terry. Now, I think Terry was responsible for quite an extraordinary development in 1980s tabloid world. Again, I open to correction on any of this stuff. Was Terry one of the first page seven Fellas, that's F-E-L-L-A-S. I've got no idea. <laughs> it was Fellas, Absolutely though, it was, yeah. Fe- well, page three you had Stunas, S-T-U-N-N-A-S, and on page seven you had Fellas. It was uh, unthinkable that you would have an R in 1980s tabloid world. So, yeah, Terry was out there. Can I chuck a couple of other names at you here, Tim? Helen Mellons Windsor. Oh, she was royalty, wasn't she? (laughs) She was the daughter of the Duke of Kent. She is 43rd in line to the throne. I know nothing at all else about Helen Mellons Windsor, apart from the fact that she was apparently nicknamed Mellons in the 1980s, which seems extraordinary with the benefit of 35 years of hindsight. But she was. Can I chuck in your direction Tiggy Leg Burke? Another royal one, wasn't she a nanny? She was. She was nanny to Prince William and Prince Harry. Here's one. Here's, see how you do with this. Fawn Hall. That sounds like a stately home. <laughs> no, it's, it's E.T., isn't it? <laughs> E.T. Fawn Hall. Fawn Hall was former secretary to Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North and a notable figure in the Iran-Contra affair. I've got this straight from Wikipedia, but I remember her being something of a tabloid figure at the time as well. And the one that I love is a chap called Max Quarterman. Max Quarterman was known in the tabloids of the 1980s. In fact, I think he might have gone a bit beyond that. I think I think we can go back to the 1970s with Max Quarterman. He was known as Super Hod. And his shtick, Max Quarterman's thang, was that he had basically become a millionaire by hard work. He was a hod carrier, super hod, and he drove a Rolls Royce. And I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure he can't genuinely have been a millionaire. If he was, he carried an awful lot of hods around. But the tabloids absolutely built him up. I guess he was almost shown as an example of kind of like, this is the peak of Thatcherism. If you work 
20 hours a day carrying a hoard, you too can reach the pinnacle of life's achievements and you can have a fortune and you can drive a Rolls Royce. So, I mean, you know, good luck to Max Quarterman, obviously. I think he's still out there somewhere as well. He was the millionaire hod carrier. These people kind of drift in and out of my consciousness every now and again. To be perfectly honest with you, I couldn't picture any of them. I couldn't tell you what any of them look like. I just remember their names from tabloid newspapers of 35 years ago. Say what you like about tabloid newspapers. I'm not a huge fan particularly, but uh, such is the power of the media, certainly back in the 1980s, that these characters have become maybe not quite integral parts of our popular culture, but they've certainly lodged in my head for far too long. Well, I've got some theories on why they suddenly started going for these non-celebrity celebrities. Though admittedly, some of them make some of the ones that we've got these days look, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they're positively A-list compared to some of the celebrities we have these days. But I just want to mention a couple of my favourites first before I go on to that theory, which is, first of all, there was Felix Howard. Now, do you remember who he was? Felix Howard, the name rings a bell. Go on. He was the young boy who was in the video for Madonna's Open Your Heart. Oh, wow. And then he briefly co-presented the Tube and famously interviewed Paul McCartney, who, when he got really flustered interviewing him, people play this as a like TV hell clip but Paul is really generous oh bless him and you know turns it back and goes like it's quite interesting being interviewed by a young fella (laughs) you know tries to engage him in conversation but he was constantly in the papers but my favourites were these names will probably probably ring a very worrying bell in your head now wild child Emma (gasps) Ridley and quote her pop husband Robert Perrano now, even as a fairly pop music chart obsessed youngster, I used to think, how is he her pop husband? What does he do? What's he involved with? All I found out about him in later years is he is in Extro, the British sci-fi horror film from right. the early 80s, which is briefly considered a video nasty. That is all I know about him. I don't know about any links with pop music whatsoever. <laughs> and their celebrity appeared to be that... She occasionally, she may have been 17 and drank a cocktail or something. Why, there you go, wild child. And he was nearby being her pop husband. <laughs> and that was all it was. But my theory about why they're sort of featuring people like these all the more is, I would say it started kind of in the early 80s, was there was a sudden change in access to celebrities because I can remember when Prince was when were they first been on the Brits there was a big outcry almost I couldn't figure out why there was an outcry about the fact he had security with yes him that's right when he came to get an award but then the world changed everyone was doing that there was less access to actual famous people yeah. and so maybe they just thought well these people will talk to us and seem like a bit of a laugh let's try and build them up a bit get a bit of reader interest and it didn't quite take I off. guess yes if the actual celebrities won't speak to us well uh, screw them We'll build our own celebrities. <laughs> it's not a six million dollar. <laughs> we have the technology. We have a hunky page seven fella. And now something you might not have heard. Me on It's an S-Pod thing, talking to Sophie Davis about S Club 7's ridiculous feature-length time travel adventure, Back to the 50s. After that, they're hanging out at the diner again. Chuck is quite concerned. And he says to Hannah, have you ever had one of those days where you wish you'd never been born? And she's like, I haven't been. Which is one of the really good jokes in it, actually. And she's weirdly got a mouthful of chips when she says it. <laughs> I 
And the other great bit about that scene is that John's working out the contract with a modern calculator. And again, nobody says anything. Nobody says, what is that weird thing that's taking up half the table? <laughs> yeah, doesn't Rachel say something earlier, actually, about, um, oh, I, I, I can't, I don't have my um, cell phone or my cell phone doesn't work or something. We don't actually ever see them with a cell phone. They weren't that common at the time, were they? Not really. They were starting to become a bit more common, but... I can say, I a couple of years before that, I got a... Well, we did call them cell phones at that point. After six months, I thought, there is no point having this, and didn't renew it, and I wouldn't have got a new one for quite a long time after that. So certainly while this was on, I didn't have one. Most people I knew didn't have one. That was starting to change, but it was still quite a rarity, really. And I suppose it was a bit of an aspirational thing, so it would make sense that Rachel would have one and the others wouldn't. Yeah, it's just weird. We've we've never seen it before. And like, spoilers, I've watched the special after this. And a big part of the plot is the fact that Rachel has to keep going to a phone box to phone her boyfriend in England. (laughs) (laughs) No continuity. (laughs) And it's decided, isn't it, that Rachel is the one who's going to be the driver in the race. And I quite like this because in previous episodes, Rachel has always been very sort of made fun of for being a bit girly and vain. So I was quite pleasantly surprised that she was the sort of designated driver in this episode because I didn't really expect it. Yeah, and that's, again, that's quite a positive thing. You know, even at that context at that time to do, to have one of the female leads, you know, taking part in the car race as well, which brings me on to the really weird thing about the whole drag race sequence, which is... It's very closely modelled now, as I'll explain, this is no coincidence, on a mid-60s film called Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. The shot-for-shot homages in it, which is really weird. For anyone who's not seen that, it's basically a driving movie about three go-go dancers who are challenged to a drag race by a very man's man man who isn't happy when they beat him, starts attacking them. They murder him and drive off through the desert trying to conceal his death and... It isn't a coincidence because the Spice Girls video, Say You'll Be There, was very deliberately modelled on that as well. So somebody involved with the Spice Girls and S Club 7 was a fan of this film. (laughs) And it's a really weird thing to refer to in, you know, a Saturday evening primetime family entertainment show, really. (laughs) I mean, it's one of my favourite films, but this was the last place I expected to see it referenced. (laughs) Of course, all kids saw that at the time. (laughs) Yeah, because it's black and white as well. That's the other thing. Clearly a popular film in, I don't know, the Fuller family or something. (laughs) Maybe Kim and Simon Fuller are big fans of it, along with Reservoir Dogs. (laughs) Oh, they definitely like that. Or they like the first 90 seconds of it. That's so bizarre. It's time for the race, and John is finishing off this contract still. And Rachel... Again, this is there's no real explanation for this. Rachel hands him a loads of papers from the glove compartment in the car, and there's a newspaper in there for the next day, isn't yeah. there, saying that Chuck is going to be killed in the race. Yeah, there's no explanation, but why would they have that newspaper in there? Either for some reason they had it in the present, or somebody <laughs> has somehow put the next day's newspaper in it in the past, neither of which make any sense at all. <laughs> It's like suddenly they just, there's just no rules of time anymore. Like going back to the past wasn't enough. We now have this other thing that's somehow just come to them. 
like in the or again it's the car being magic for some reason like it was in the glove compartment of the car for some reason do you get the feeling there were a lot of scenes of explanation about the car's magic powers that were somehow either dropped at the script stage or edited out to fit it into a shorter time slot or because there's so many pointers towards this car (laughs) having abilities beyond the capabilities of an ordinary car that there has to have been something in that that fell by the wayside for some reason. Don't forget that you can find the full version of my chat with Sophie about S7, along with the full versions of all of these shows, and plenty more besides, at timworthington.org. In fact, while you're there, why not help support Looks Unfamiliar by buying one of my books? Anyway, that's pretty much it for now. Keep on enjoying Looks Unfamiliar. Various reverb size, like he's pushing a camper van up a hill. As far as I can tell, he starts impersonating a chicken at one point. And, um... (laughs) There's also, I mean, I didn't mention this earlier on in the song, there's a trumpet explosion. It sounds a bit like the noise our toilet made in the mid-70s when you flushed it. Well, at least it's free. A big book of columns and features by Tim Worthington. More details at timworthington.org. You've been posting a lot of pictures recently of you and various Lego sets. Can I just point out, it's pictures of me making Lego sets. It's not me, like, on the date with Lego, like you've just made it sound. No, I mean, that's the way I took it. I do have a Lego Gamora, so, you know. I was going to say, but... you were definitely making googly eyes at your Lego Captain Marvel. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so, were you a Lego kid? Yeah, but like proper Lego. I never had Duplo or Fabuland. But yeah, I had loads of like, it's mainly space Lego, you know, I had the space cruiser, yeah. space station, space nice. rover, the space spaceship, you know, all the the space options basically. And you got did you have the moon base with the with the moon tiles that you I have moon it tiles but not with the moon base. Ah. Like that that was Kind of that was a kid down the end of the road kind of Lego that was. I, I, I had that one. I did have that one. <laughs> Were you down the end of your own road? I, I was. It was. It was a cul-de-sac. So basically, we were all the kid down the end of the road. <laughs>